I was stressed 100% of the time. And all I could think about was how much I wasn't getting done, rather than focusing on the things that I was achieving. On today's program, we look at innovation in healthcare as one means of combating burnout. For all of us who take care of patients in the course of our workday, we have been trained and conditioned by our educational process to continue to work despite the fact that our batteries are completely empty. We didn't hear a lot about burnout before the pandemic, but it was there. And one of the culprits may just have been a tech advance itself. Even before COVID, we saw um, the electronic health record as being a very large driver of burnout. Um, with COVID and patients being able to access their health record and access their physicians at much higher rates, we are seeing even more burnout related to um, the electronic health record. Coming up, a conversation about innovation in healthcare with someone at the cutting edge. Stay with us. It's the Hear Me Now podcast. I'm Sean Collins. Glad you're with us. Burnout was already a topic of conversation in medical circles well before we ever heard of COVID. And the pandemic only accelerated the departure of healthcare professionals from established careers. So maybe it seems counterintuitive to look to burnout as the germ of innovation, but that is exactly what seems to be happening. Providence has embarked on a multifaceted approach to addressing clinical burnout. And just as no one issue causes burnout, no one solution will cure it. Instead, they have a Swiss Army knife approach that includes innovation in a variety of areas, believing that by improving the experience of delivering care, they will improve the patient's experience of receiving it. Or as I've seen members of the team write, they're all about restoring joy in the practice of medicine. Dr. Malin Shaw is Chief Medical Information Officer for Providence and VP of Informatics and Engineering. And he's with me now from Portland. Dr. Shaw, welcome to the podcast. It's really great to have you here. Thanks. Thanks for having me. To restore joy in the practice of medicine. That's a tall order, but one that I imagine is really gratifying when you make strides towards achieving it. Yeah, for sure. You know, I'm, I'm a physician myself and, and seeing you know, my peers, my colleagues burning out, getting tired. I was just talking to my sister literally yesterday at lunch about how she's a hospitalist here uh, for Providence and how she was feeling like she just wasn't sure how much longer she could do it. You know, it's, it's a real problem. Um, and, you know, COVID or not, like you mentioned. And so, you know, my job here at Providence, and I think all of our jobs is to you know, do everything we can to take the burden away from administering care um, and, and being there on the front line so that you can focus in on your patient and, and the stuff that brings you joy, right? Like the stuff that as a frontline caregiver brings you joy uh, and allows you to do the most good. Yeah. And it, it makes financial sense too, right? How much does it cost to recruit and hire and onboard a new physician? 
I better not quote the number because I'll probably get it wrong, but it's definitely six figures. Uh, it's, a, it's a lot of money. Um, and by the time they're onboarded and seeing a full panel of patients and understand all the providence nuances of how we care for patients and what we do, it can take quite some time as well. So anything you can do to retain and improve the work environment for existing caregivers, as long as it's below that six figures, you're ahead, aren't you? Absolutely. And, and just think about the patient experience, right? I mean, you don't want your doctor to leave and yeah. you know, have to see a new doctor, then have to see a new doctor. I mean, it's, it's important for the commitment we have to our patients. As I nosed around this topic in preparation for the episode, um, you get the sense that people begin to equate burnout with the sort of simultaneous adoption of electronic health records that happened historically. Um, I know that that's too simplistic of an association, but I think a lot of people are making it. And that idea is out there in in your work environment. Um, How do you approach that issue? It is a good point. I mean, if you think about how health records got wedged into healthcare, it was through a government initiative, right? It was through initiatives that forced the utilization of a tool, no matter how mature or immature, because frankly, you know, um, healthcare was kicking and screaming when it came to health information. It's funny, we're, we're cutting edge when it comes to like robotic surgeries. Every, all the docs want to do it. But when it comes to health information management, it was something that they were really kicking and screaming. And so, you know, if you think about the initial um, incentives being how often are you clicking here or doing this one thing or doing this other thing, you know, the, the tools got built uh, for physicians and for care first out of the need for better billing and then out of a need to ad- address these meaningful use, which is what they would call the meaningful use criteria. So no no question that these were enough clunky tools that were not sort of designed uh, with the clinical encounter in mind. You know, they, they just jammed stuff in there. I think over time that's actually gotten better, but it, you know, you, you only get a for one chance to make a first impression. And so yeah. it's taking a very, very long time to, you know, really show people how things have, have improved. And one of the things my team really focuses it on is saying, Things have improved, but you've not you've chosen not to do them. You know, we, we have these modern web browsers or we have modern things and you guys are still, you know, using Internet Explorer from 2002. So how do I get you to move forward along with these tools and get you out of kind of your practice patterns? So walk us through some of the, the uh, innovation that you're bringing to that sort of training, mentoring that goes on in sort of helping physicians and nurses to adopt a tool that they think they may not like? Yeah, we have a number of different kind of approaches. And like you said earlier, no one approach is going to work for sure. Um, You know, at at the highest levels, we got to make sure our tools are as fast as they can be just from a performance perspective, that they have a nearly 100% uptime. So there's infrastructure, right? There's, There's security. There's these things that you, know, you, you don't want to ever have to think about wireless network infrastructure, all that stuff that nobody really wants to think about. Things should just work. So I, that's the first thing about building trust. And that's what it, we work on as an IS organization. But then you dive into kind of the, okay, I trust that this thing will not be broken. That's good. Um, but now what do I do? We can kind of split our um, approach into a few different areas. Um, on, on the front is, uh, is training. It's not where people get very uh, stuck on training being the thing that happens when you join the company. 
Hmm. Well, that may have been 10 years ago. For me, it was 17 years ago, right? Mm -hmm. Like that, that, that doesn't help me uh, anymore. And so changing the paradigm of training to an ongoing process yeah. to be able to be something that you're constantly learning, how, however we can deliver that training to you in a, in a busy clinician's life is sort of the first piece. That includes us looking at the data uh, provided by our electronic health record vendor that says this particular clinician, this particular physician is super efficient or this person is not efficient. And so we can target those um, um, physicians or, or nurses that are not as efficient and say, okay, well, these are people that we need to spend a little time with. Uh, but also just ubiquitous training for everybody. And then for those high performers, giving them even uh, more training, power user, if you will, is what, what Epic calls it, our EHR vendor calls it, uh, so that they can then like, uh, they can pass that along through like osmosis with their with their peers, right? Like they're the, the they know people know. Oh, I can talk to such and such, and I'll get better at this. Or right. I, I have you know. So there's that. That's just that's training, uh, and part of that's what we call coaching, um, where uh, uh, you can reach out and have a one on one session scheduled uh, with an expert to say, how can I make my workflow better? Uh, so lots of different opportunities. You seem to be pointing to a really ancient tradition in medicine, which is that. People are mentored by their elders and they learn by watching and they get good at something because of that training. Uh, and then they teach others how to do what has been passed on to them. Absolutely. See one, do one, teach one is what we all learned in residency. And uh, to the extent that we can do that and, and leverage that culture, um, the better the better off we are, right? Might need to be C50 a thousand. It should have been C50 all along, <laughs> let's just be clear. <laughs> I shouldn't see one appendix and, and do one. That, that was never a good idea. Uh, you know, I'll just, I'll close out on training, but like the, the last thing about training is that it is the best bang for our buck. So if we spend a dollar on training, we will get the highest return compared to a do, spending a dollar on making the tool easier to use or a, do, a, a dollar on some, you know, new innovation. So it's simple but it's clearly the best work. It's just, it, it, when you go and talk to a doctor, like, well, why can't you just make it easier? Well, we spend a lot of time making it easier. You're not using, <laughs> you're not using it. And that's why we have to train and train and train. So that's, that's number one. So as a uh, person who has watched his primary care doc during encounters, I've noticed part of her work seems to be pulling down multiple nested menus and clicking, you know, click, click, click click. It seems like there's so many steps sometimes to get to what she's trying to put into the record. And that just seems like like kind of awful web.1 uh, user interface design. I mean, as a complete newbie, I, I can't believe that it's not easier. And so now you've said the the speech that every physician I've ever met tells me. <laughs> um, so you, you, you just got your MD. Um, no, I, I, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the user interfaces have not come along. Some places where they have come along, and, and again, our vendor is working very hard on that, um, they're not in the traditional You kind of have to change how you do your work to get to that, and, and it generates a note differently. But what I really feel like, and, and this is where the innovation stuff comes in, is we have to step away from the paradigm, right? You can only improve something for so long. Great, make the computer better, make the computer better, make the computer better. I, you, you can only do that um, for so long. So what um, we're one of the things that we've done is we've partnered with a company called Nuance, 
who's, uh, who is a, a Microsoft company. Uh, they put together some pretty amazing innovation um, called the Dragon Ambient Experience, or DAX. So to get to your example of you're sitting in the exam room, your physicians clicking, clicking, looking at their computer. Maybe they look up and look at you once and then they start looking at like, who are they taking care of? You are the computer. Dragon Ambient Experience DAX uh, attempts to address this directly. So uh, it listens to the conversation so that you and your physician can be having a, a conversation directly. It listens to that. And then from that, it generates a clinical note so the physician's not busy looking for dropdowns, but instead can, can just have the note already there. Then when the physician's interacting with computers for very specific things like decision support or how can I best take care of this patient or what are your medications doing and, and that kind of stuff. So you still have the computer, but you're doing the right work with it. You're not just sitting there transcribing that somebody else can do. I'll just add that, uh, you know, the, the current version of DAX that we're, we're one of the larger users of with our physicians uh, creates a note, but it takes four or six hours to get the note back. So you kind of, you get the note at the end of the day, you review these notes and then you sign them and, and off you go. With that in and of itself, uh, overall, overall, there's been a lot of satisfaction and things have really gotten better with that. But it wasn't enough. And so Nuance has uh, recently uh, announced a product called DAX Express. So this is a GPT, so you know Chat GPT. It's enabled by Chat GPT, not the public Chat GPT, but a private version that's hosted in Microsoft. Um, but basically, it uses GPT to create that note in real time. Mm. So now I have a conversation with you. Then when I look to the computer, I've got a note. So I can, all that work I'm doing with the note, it's all right there. It doesn't generate a transcript. It generates something that is a, a synthesized version of what was said. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, both versions. Yeah, they are a synthesized version of it. So they'll say, you know, patient comes in with X and has been feeling such and such. And, you know, uh, it's, it's a really impressive tool. Have you used it with a patient? I have not used it with a patient. Actually, it's not available for uh, general availability yet. They're kind of on a private preview. Um, so, uh, but we're definitely excited to pilot it as soon as they get out of that preview. And, and can I ask whether you've, you've used it in any sort of beta form with a colleague, sort of not with a patient, but with someone else? No, not yet. Not not that not that instantly available one. We haven't we haven't got our hands on it yet. I'm really curious what that experience is going to be like for the clinician, right? Absolutely, we we, we are as well. Uh, and and again, so uh, I have the the chief medical information officer. We have a couple in our organization um, that we have an ambulatory focused chief medical information officer, Dr. Scott Smitherman. He's been using this in his clinic, the DAX uh, version, and he's like, you know, for the first time, I can just go home one time. I, I that, that again, you were talking about burden and burnout, right? right? I get to go home on time. I don't have to open my chart again after going home. That's just a, a huge win. And that's without the newer version that's going to be real time, which we're super excited about. It's like someone hands the doctor, here are four hours of your life back. <laughs> you know? Absolutely. What's really interesting is, yeah, you get, you get an hour, maybe 90 minutes out of the DAX. You get another hour from training, which is what we've quantified. So, I mean, you're talking about a couple hours a day of people's lives get, coming back to them. I mean, it's, that's not subtle. Wow. Do you know how many episodes of Survivor you can binge if you <laughs> use it? Right. <laughs> so, so we should be keeping an eye out for this DAX, which again stands for Dragon Ambient Experience, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. When do you think it'll uh, be ready to... 
beta test in a clinical setting at Providence? Yeah, at, at Providence, probably end of the year, maybe early next year would be my guess. Um, and, you know, we got to be careful, right? I mean, all of the, especially the generative AI, right? It is, it's exciting, but it's also not only new, but there are some very real risks um, with, with the generative AI. You've probably, you know, many of you probably have heard about hallucinations where it'll just make stuff up. So it's listening to your conversation and theoretically it could just make stuff up. Now, Dragon, I mean, the Nuance company is clearly like checking it and making sure it doesn't do that, but that's what we're waiting for, right? We want to make sure it doesn't do that. But there's a lot of other things that are really hard to test. Things like um, bias, you know, could it create a different kind of note based on the kind of Mm -hmm. um, the way people talk, right? Because this is a, a model that was just trained on the internet, you know, conversations on Facebook and Reddit. Right. So is it possible that we'll be creating bias in our care because somebody speaks with a particular vernacular? I don't know. I I hope not. But hope not doesn't feel good enough for patient care. And so we're waiting a little bit. We want to see what's going to happen. So you're going into it with your eyes open. Absolutely. Um, At at the sort of um, practical level, uh, is there a way not with the generative um, version but is there a way to sort of trigger it to make a verbatim note, almost like a Siri encounter? Yeah, and, and that's stuff that we're looking into. There's a, a tool called Hey Epic. Epic, again, is the name of our EMR. Uh, so you say, Hey Epic, and you can have it do things. Um, there's a, a, some talk about the Dragon um, experience having a similar thing where you can turn it on with a, a as an assistant, a virtual assistant. None of that super far along. Um, hey, Epic is live in our system and its utilization is pretty low, just to be honest. I mean, I think, frankly, I use my Alexa a lot more than I like in the old, before when I first got it than I do now. Now it's like a glorified shopping list and an iPod. Uh, right? yeah. So yeah. Uh, it's, it's that kind of a thing. We just got to find the right use case. Dr. Shaw, uh, I think whenever there's talk of innovation and particularly when there's um, artificial intelligence mentioned in the conversation. I think some people are going to put up mental roadblocks. Um, They're going to think they're turning us into bot fodder, Um, really long, long, long numbers. And I'm curious, what does Providence do to ensure that the humanity of the people that are being cared for doesn't get forgotten in the environment of innovation. Yeah, that's a, I mean, that's a great observation. I think the biggest thing to think about is the AI is about not necessarily about helping patients, to be honest. It's about helping your caregiver, your, your clinician, your physician, so that they can still help the patient. It's about allowing physicians to be human again, um, creating that human-to-human contact. Uh, which right now, like we said earlier, they're busy looking at the computer and they're not looking at you, right? So if anything, what I, my hope and vision for AI is to take get rid of all the administrative stuff, even serve up the clinical stuff in a way so that I, as the human, as the physician, can s- sit and talk to you and have the information I need at the tip of my tongue so that we can make a decision together. So it's, it's, it's far more about that than it is about replace. We're not replacing physicians. For, even if the technology was there, I don't think the humanity is there, yeah. right? And the technology is not there. So um, we're not. It's not about replacing really any kind of staff. 
but about augmenting our ability to do a better job. Can we talk about whether the, this move that you're undertaking at Providence is going to have any impact on the care for diverse populations who might be slipping through the cracks in other ways? Is there any hope here that this could make care better for more people? Yeah, for in a number of different ways. I mean, and maybe they're a step or two further, right? But if I can more systematically and more uh, consistently interact with my patients, right? So uh, I know I'm going to have a certain set of information about my patients. I don't have to go searching in a chart for it because, for example, AI has served it up for me, right? I know that um, that my team has had standardized workflows enabled by AI to be able to prepare your patient for a visit, whether it's, you know, make sure you bring in your medications or make sure you, you know, you find the records for something or whatever it might be, or um, so that I have kind of a consistent approach to every patient. Then by being standardized and consistent, I know that I'm going to be able to, one, just make sure I'm reducing any implicit bias and making sure that we're being inclusive and, and, um, and really respecting um, the diversity of our of our patient population. Secondarily, though, you know the mission at Providence is is around care of the poor and the vulnerable. And as you think about how AI um, or other innovations can uh, impact that care, things that come to mind right off the bat are just access to care, right? Mm-hmm. Like so, making access more ready, more available, being super smart about how we schedule patients, how being super smart about who's going to not show up. We have a uh, machine learning AI model that helps us to predict whether a slot is going to be filled or not, or if somebody's not going to show up for whatever reason. And if not, we call them to try to get them to show. Like we don't want them to no show. We want them, we don't say these are the targeted people that we can call and try to have them come. Can I send you an Uber, whatever it might be. We need you to come to this appointment. But then if you're not, I've opened up access. So you've done a couple different ways by predicting who might not show using AI to help improve ac- access to the clinic or access to, to our care. It's just, you know, there's a lot of different examples of how you really optimize the time of the clinician. And, and access to the information about your care. Like now that the health record is available for patients to read, does everyone have access through a phone or through a computer to be able to access that on their own? Or if they're elderly and are you know, not interested in learning a new technology, there's that diversity angle to it. Exactly. And, and I think that's what I, we have to be careful about, right? Like, so as much as we have adoption of our electronic tools, our mobile tools, the things that are on your phone about your care, that's not everyone. And in fact, the people who are most likely to step through the cracks are the ones who are not engaged, right? So it's very easy for me to do an outreach program to those that are connected. I can say, you know, you're due for your colonoscopy, whatever it might be. But, and, and so I'm glad I can make the care better for those that are already re- start receiving good care, but that's missing the, that's missing the, those that don't. The access problems, for example, like the one I just mentioned, where I'm calling you because I think maybe you won't show them. And I have no idea how the algorithm works. That's the beauty of it, right? But the algorithm works and maybe it's checking. Do you have an account with us or not? It, it's unclear, but the point is, is that it's, um, you know, we're trying to find a way to be a safety net to, to catch those people. Yeah even when they're not, 
you know, electronically engaged with us. I want them electronically engaged, but not everyone can. Be. Right. Um, I hate to keep hearkening back to this model of comparing everything to old things, but um, I sometimes think it's useful to, for people who are uh, reluctant to embrace new technologies to remember that this is sort of the way it used to be. You know, if there was a patient on your your schedule for the day and your receptionist noticed that, oh, they don't have a car or they their car broke down, then they were late the last time, maybe I should call and find out, do you need help getting here today? I mean, in the most humane, human way of interacting with patients, it's what used to happen. Yeah. We're trying to do that at scale and cost, right? Yeah. So if I had enough people, right, if I had enough people, the proportion of people that a practice sees and the proportion of office staff, you know, you could have those same exact relationships, but you'd only have them in that clinic. We're trying to do it across a thousand clinics and we want everyone to get the same experience. And the way to do that is to, to use technology to help us, to, to help our humans be human again. When you look ahead, um, I don't know, 20 years, what do you think medicine's going to look like that's radically different from what it looks like now? Well, I'd say the biggest change is you're going to have less care. I don't think you need as much care as we're doing if we do it right. In other words, we'll be focused on preventative care, lifestyle medicine, you know, really making sure without you even necessarily being aware that we have shifted the habits and that we've, we've kind of seen, helped you to have the best habits to take the best care of yourself. That's not to say disease goes away. But I think we'll be, you'll see a focus on health. Um, that, that'll be first and foremost in my mind. And by focusing on health, I, ideally it's as transparent as possible for you, right? Like, so it's, you're just healthy. I don't know how that works. That's why it's 25 years from now. Um, but it feels like there, there would be ways, you know, whether it's using wearable technology or technology, you know, that tells us kind of how you're functioning and, hey, you haven't walked in a while or, you know, it seems like you might be limping on your left foot, whatever. I mean, I, I don't know the level of detail we need to know, but then you put that into some serious analytics and, and computational power and create a picture of, of, you know, lives that have committed and said, you know what, I want you to help me stay healthy. And we find a way to, to help you stay healthy. Yeah. Again, no idea what that actually looks like. I think, you know, disease care um, is still going to be in some ways, you know, something that's transactional. I mean, something that you have to come in and someone has to see you. But even disease care, I think you'll see um, us be able to do less and less of it, not just because you're staying healthy, but because we know the exact interventions that are going to work exactly right for you, whether that's because we genomic-based care where we know this medicine is going to work. You don't have that, oh, I don't I don't tolerate that medicine. We're like, yeah, we, we knew that up front, so we didn't even try it, right? Um, so I think you're going to find more and more targeted care so that even the disease care is going to be uh, more transparent um, so that you're, you're just do, we're just doing less of it. You know, people ask and, and they want to, uh, you know, what I hear, I, I've heard this question before and you hear things like, um, well, you know, you, you won't see this at the, at the clinic or in the hospital, you'll see this thing or you won't see this thing. Again, my, my hope is all those things are just getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, and that they're just becoming less a part of our lives. Yeah. You have to have them. I, I could imagine a universal shift in the point of care that it moves to your home. It's like, that's the primary place for you where healthcare gets delivered. Yeah. Or it moves to your phone. I mean, it moves to wherever you are. Uh, you know, or whatever your device is in 25 years. Um, 
right? It's just, it's completely mobile. It's completely with you when you need it. And we've seen that already a transition there happening, right? But whether it's, you know, telehealth that we've been, you know, investing in and then skyrocketing, whether it's additional use of wearables, whether it's use of uh, wearables that are now monitored by your clinical team, by your, by your primary care or, right. but I, I really just think it's the beginning. I think it's the beginning because what, what, so here's the thing. Fitbit came out whenever 10, 15 years ago, and it was like one of the first wearables, right? right. And it tracked ch- your steps and stuff like that. And one of the things was like, Oh, we have to get this to your physician. And physicians are like, don't care. That's too much information. It's just, I mean, nice. I'm glad you're walking, but it's too much information. And the more and more monitors we have to monitor health, who knows what we'll be monitoring, the less any one person can look at it. But if you take all that data and you put it through a machine and you can come out with insights, now it's like, oh, you know what? Based on all this stuff, this person could probably use a phone call. Right. So it's it's insight at the other side of this sort of data fog of all this data that's going to be available on you. Right. Uh, rather than asking anyone to try to make sense of it, the machine does that and produces like, you should be paying attention to these three things. Or, right. Yeah. And I don't think that's not, uh, us not caring for them. It's us targeting our care. Yeah. To the right thing because we, nobody wants their doctor to be part of their life. I mean, like ideally, you wouldn't be sick. <laughs> so uh, you know, it's it's sort of changing that paradigm. Right. I'll just add this as a um, testament to what you've just described. A couple of weeks ago, we had a guest who talked about food as medicine and talked about uh, the importance of changing diet. And, and the, the impact that that has on heart disease and, high, you know, hypertension and all sorts of disease processes. So when you say, you know, I can imagine that those, uh, that people are healthier and they're getting their care at home, if people changed perhaps the way they ate and moved, that could happen in 25 years. It could be a generational change. But as someone who's obese and who has heart disease and diabetes and it's fallen apart in all sorts of ways. I've let my watch start to give me more information. And like initially I was afraid to turn on the activity stuff because it's like, I didn't want a nagging reminder that I'm not doing what I should do, but it has really helped me. I've lost 55 pounds in seven months. Wow. And Amazing. when I was in with my primary the other day, she said, what's different? What have you done differently? <laughs> it's like she saw the data and and said, tell me what you're doing. And I, I quoted the guest from the podcast and said, I've been chopping more vegetables. <laughs> and she said, <laughs> she said, that's great, you know, and I've been moving more. And, but that's all mediated because there's something on my wrist that's reminding me that, oh, it's been an hour since you got up from your desk and moved around. And I, I think that's important in some really w- important way for me. I think it's going to change the way I live. Yeah. I, and I, I can see that happening universally. That, you, I mean, I'm going to go back to the Swiss Army knife, right? Yeah. So for you, that knife was perfect. And somebody else is going to need a corkscrew and somebody else is going to need a bottle opener and all the things in that Swiss Army knife. And it's on us to help be creative and imaginative about how we're going to support people. Because I think that's, Again, this is what happens, right? Your story is amazing, and congratulations. Um, it's and and so I hope people hear that and think about the watch as a biofeedback mechanism 
and about chopping vegetables um, and can and can and can have that experience. But we know others are going to have different motivators are going to be able to be they are going to think it's a nag and it's going to actually be harder when they do that. So, again, the data can help us with this, even even though I know that sounds kind of inhuman, but like the data can help us and be like, you know what, this person is most likely to be motivated by a biofeedback mechanism. This person is maybe more motivated by a daily summary of what they did so that they can change tomorrow or I don't know. Um, so I, I, I hope we continue to build more and more innovative ways, but we don't get stuck because when we get stuck back to your point, people fall through the cracks, yeah. right? We got to have ways to help everybody. Dr. Shaw, thanks so much for the work you're doing, but also for taking the time to talk with us today. I'm really grateful. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Um, maybe we'll do it again on a focused topic. I'll, I'll send you some cool stuff. Always interested. Speaking with us there from Portland, Oregon, Dr. Mullen Shaw. He's the Chief Medical Information Officer for Providence and the Vice President of Informatics and Engineering. The Hear Me Now podcast is a production of the Providence Health System and its family of organizations. Find us online at hearmenowpodcast.org. The program is produced by Scott Acord and Melody Fawcett. We have research help from medical library staff, Carrie Grinstead, Basha Dolovska-Elliott, Sarah Viscuso, and Heather Martin. Our theme music was written by Roger Neal. The executive producer is Michael Drummond. I'm Sean Collins. Thanks for listening today. Be well.